When was the last time you felt afraid? I mean, really afraid. There are as many kinds of ghosts in this world as there are living beings. Some simply appear, some try to help or communicate with us, and others mean us harm. Encounters with the supernatural are not random chaotic experiences. They are all too real. This account is not fiction. It is also real. But do not be afraid. I am here to guide you through the spaces where the living meet the dead. The slaves were brought here in miserable conditions and made to live in deplorable dwellings. They thought evil was ever present. To keep the evil out, they would paint the floorboards, the rafters, the interior doors and windows, and very rarely, if their master would let them, the exterior doors and windows, paint blue. A spiritual practice, the object of which was to keep haints out of the house. Made from indigo grown on the plantations between the rows of cotton, lime, and buttermilk, the color of the paint was intended to resemble water, which haints are unable to cross. The Scots and English who first settled the South, in Virginia and North Carolina, didn't say ghost. That is a German term, brought over in the 19th century by the German immigrants, poltergeist. The British didn't say ghost. They said haunt or specter. If you read Chaucer, Shakespeare, or Sir Thomas More, they say haunt. Haint is the Gullah dialect for haunt. Haint blue keeps the haints out. Another thing the slaves would do is wallpaper their domiciles with newspaper and lay brooms across the threshold of any exterior doors. That way, if any hates get in, they would have to read all the newsprint and count all the bristles on the broom. By the time they had finished reading and counting, it would be daylight and the hates couldn't bother them after sunrise. The Owens Thomas house, where the least and the most powerful people in Savannah lived until the Civil War freed the slaves and laid low the masters. Three generations of the same family lived in this house. It has been featured in five different books, The Hauntings. The last owner of the house, Margaret Thomas, spent her entire life here and would rent out the upper floor and the slave quarters for income. It is the largest urban slave quarters in the South. In 1819, one in three people living in Savannah were slaves. This is the oldest and best preserved urban slave quarters in the city. 14 enslaved people, about half of whom were children, lived and worked on the site at any given time. This is where the house slaves lived and died when not assisting family members. The slaves built and maintained the house, did the shopping, cooked the food, cared for the horses, drove the carriage and raised the children. Once the war ended, the space became servants' quarters, housing many of the same people. In its past, the building housed from nine to 14 people. It exhibits the largest example of haint blue paint in the country. The first floor of the structure is built of tabby, consisting of lime, oyster shell, sand, and water an archaic form of concrete. The second floor is built of coquina, which is lighter. The walls are 23 inches thick. It has an iron substructure and an iron and slate roof. 
Combined, these materials have enabled the house to stand for centuries. Tabby made of oyster shell burned with wood was piled layer upon layer into a great mound. As much as 300 bushels of shell and a hundred cord of wood. When it was time to burn, musicians would appear with food and drink for the slaves, which brought a festive occasion that ranked with cockfights and wrestling matches. It rivaled celebrations like the King's birthday and later the 4th of July. The raised basement has openings to admit light and air. The bathing area in the basement was restricted for the use of the family. It comprised two small rooms, each with a marble bathing tub, a room with a fireplace, and another room with a stall shower. The marble tubs are long gone, but the shower is still intact. My friend was assistant curator at the time, had taken a new position as curator at the Winterthur House in Delaware and was leaving within the week. We had lunch and she gave me an impromptu tour of the basement, kitchen and baths. We were standing just inside the door of the original bathing room on the ground level when the room became ice cold and very quiet. Even though moments before, the sound of carriages and tour buses were loudly passing on the street, just feet from where we stood. Standing by the window casement was a woman of about 30 years of age, dressed in a floor-length white gown. Immediately upon sight of her, an equestrian of elegant attire strode past me abruptly. He turned, giving me a look of stern disapproval. In the same instant, the apparitions were gone. In astonishment, I looked at my friend and she was visibly shaken and pale as a lily. She said she had seen a 19th century gentleman walk past me into the room and vanish into thin air. Built in 1819 for Bermuda-born banker and slave trader Richard Richardson, it was designed by William J a 20-year-old architect from Bath, England, who arrived in Savannah in 1817 to supervise construction of the house. Savannah was a city with many wealthy cotton merchants and planters, and the economy was booming. Two of the property's primary owners derived their wealth from the institution of slavery. Without the labor and blood of the slaves, the wealth and prestige of the owners would not exist. Most people associate slavery with rural environs and plantations. But the truth is, slavery existed in the mansions and townhouses of urban areas throughout both Americas. Richard Richardson originally made his wealth from shipping people, mostly children, from Savannah to New Orleans, where they were sold as slaves. And he was a cotton factor in partnership with Robert Bolton. He married Bolton's daughter, Frances. They occupied the house for only three years suffering unthinkable losses during that time. Two of their children died, the last one in 1822, when their mother, Frances, also died. Richardson lost his fortune the same year as a result of the depression that had caused Jay to depart for England. When his business failed, the bank repossessed his home and its contents, and he moved to New Orleans, 
where his fortunes improved. In 1833, he died at sea on a return voyage from Marseilles to New Orleans. By 1824, the Bank of the United States had title to the house. The bank leased it to Mary Maxwell, a widow who operated it as a boarding house. In 1825, the Marquis de Lafayette and his son, George Washington Lafayette, stayed in the house on their year-long tour of the United States. Savannah Mayor George Owens purchased the home in 1830. Slaves moved in with Owens. He owned several plantations in North and South Georgia and on St. Catharines Island. Owens purchased the house from profits earned on the backs of some 400 adults and children on his plantation. His granddaughter, Margaret Thomas, was born in the house in 1860, the year the Civil War began, and died in 1949, five years after World War II, in the same bed she was born in. She lived in the home all of her life, and she is still in the house. Miss Thomas is seen quite often. She is seen in the front parlor, on the stairs, and in her bedroom. But more often than not, she is seen in the garden after dark. It's not unusual to see a lady walking in her garden after dark, but this is a museum. No one lives here. It closes at five o'clock. Residents in the homes adjacent to the house see the veiled figure of a woman wrapped in a gray shawl walking in the garden. Margaret loved to dress up in the old family clothes and have parties with her friends. It had been her custom to mark her birthday with a Victorian costume party each year. The first year after her death, some of her friends decided to carry on the custom with a small celebration on her birthday. The editor of the Savannah Morning News thought it was a good human interest story and sent a staff photographer over who did not know the history of the house. The young man arrived at the old mansion after dark to find several elderly ladies in old-fashioned garb gathered in the dimly lit front parlor around a small table. Its centerpiece was a cake with flickering candles casting grotesque shadows on the walls. Where is Mrs. Thomas, he asked. Oh, she's dead, poor dear. Without waiting for his photo and thinking he was at a seance, the startled man is said to have run all the way back to the newspaper. Jim Williams, the central character in the book Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, had a friend that lived upstairs. He occupied the entire upper floor as his apartments. Nice digs. Jim didn't have anything to do with this house. He was just visiting. If Jim hadn't become notorious for his infamous trials, he would have been famous for his preservation work. He restored almost 60 homes in the historic district. This was in the early 1960s. Jim and his business partner were visiting the man that lived upstairs. It was twilight on a peaceful Sunday afternoon. Their host had just served the first drinks of the cocktail hour and they were sitting in the front room on the top floor overlooking the square. There were three men in the room talking. When Jim and his business partner noticed two very odd things. The first odd thing they noticed, a man materialized in the back of the room. He just came out of nowhere. Jim said there were three men in the room talking and all of a sudden there was a fourth party. The two men looked at each other and acknowledged they had just witnessed the same thing. The other odd thing the men noticed 
was their host, the man they were visiting, didn't see anything out of the ordinary. He just sat there talking. Jim described the ghost in detail. He was an equestrian of the 19th century, a man with black hair, about 30 to 35 years of age, powerfully built, weighing about 180 pounds. But at the same time, they knew he was not real. He had tall black riding boots, for slacks, a swallowtail jacket, and a riding crop in his hand. When Jim saw the riding crop, he nicknamed him the Horseman. Jim had a sense of humor when it came to ghosts. Jim was intently watching the apparition, move back and forth across the room, when abruptly, the ghost stops, turns, and walks right through the two-seater couch or love seat their host is sitting on, but he never missed a beat. He just sat there talking. The ghost came and hovered over Jim. His partner was so scared that he was climbing up the back of his chair. The apparition seemed to be just as interested in Jim as he was in the ghost. That's when Jim noticed two funny things. The ghost had blue eyes, and not only that, he noticed the specter's forehead and there was sweat on his brow. He looked like he had just come in from a hard ride. Only in Savannah would the ghost sweat. The whole time he was standing over Jim, it was like the Cheshire Cat. He slowly vanished. And the last thing they saw of the apparition was his lingering smile as he slowly vanished from sight. Their host was concerned and asked them, why are you acting so peculiarly? They explained what they had seen, and he told them both they were inebriated and they needed to leave his apartments immediately. He told them they were drunk and to get out. The man had been living there for five years. Within two weeks of that episode, he was packed and moved. Where the Living Meet the Dead was written and hosted by Robert Edgerly and produced by Mark Francis. To buy Robert's book or get more information on his hauntings tour of Savannah, please go to savannaghostlytours.com. That's savannaghostlytours.com.